Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 13, issue number 30, which corresponds with the week of July the 10th of 2023. This week, we're going to look at asthma part one, machine learning, and a recipe. The corresponding guest podcast is number 49 with Dr. Marcel Nold, where we dive deep into neonatal immunology and microbiomes and health issues related to the same in neonates. Okay, so asthma, allergies, and nutrition. What is the story? This is a long-form look at asthma and allergies as I'm preparing a lecture uh, coming up in October in Boston on this same topic. So I thought I could break it out into a few different parts for your consumption uh, audio-wise over the next few weeks. So what do we know about asthma? Asthma is now well known to be an inflammatory disease based on the response to anti-inflammatory medications and pathophysiologic evidence, making it a prime candidate for anti-inflammatory nutritional interventions. The standard American diet, which is the problem for most diseases, is filled with pro-inflammatory, highly refined and processed foods that are laden with excessive amounts of sugar and unhealthy fats, thus promoting inflammatory pathways that exacerbate disease. The genesis of the inflammation is now believed to start in part in the intestinal and pulmonary microbiomes with the loss of immune tolerance. The intestinal microbiome is highly responsive to whole food dietary alterations. Uric acid, a byproduct of fructose metabolism, is becoming a known driver of inflammasome activation and local tissue inflammation. So therefore diets that have high volumes of fructose in them is possibly problematic. We will discuss all of these in depth and which food choices lower inflammatory burden and which food choices worsen it. And in turn, how does the asthma phenotype play out in relation to the same as well as food reactions that can exacerbate disease? And I think of dairy or the casein protein that comes to mind here. Historical medical training over the past half century has focused on asthma as an allergic disease that is predominantly only modifiable through allergic trigger avoidance and pharmaceutical and medical therapy. Now, the allergy atopic portion of the asthma story is roughly 80%, but there's still another 20% that is not related to the classic allergy story. Physicians were never trained to focus on diet or nutrition as a tool for disease remediation. Frankly, it was scoffed upon to worry about a patient's sticky bun habit as a means to modify their symptoms. And to some extent is relatively the same issue these days. Hence the reality that we look around and how many people are actually paying attention in the governmental bodies, the school bodies, the governing organizations that dictate how kids are being fed or what exposures they have via the industrial food complex. Science, on the other hand, has created a new working understanding of asthma as a modifiable disease with the discovery of the epigenome, the microbiome, the metabonome, and the neutrogenome. In order to understand how food will and does affect asthma, the understanding of the first principal root cause of asthma is critical. Asthma is an inflammatory disease that has at its genesis very early in life when a person develops a disruption of immune tolerance. This disruption occurs for many reasons. However, the leading theory, theory to me is the biome depletion theory, which has improved upon the earlier hygiene hypothesis that Strachan et al. came up with in the 1990s. 
This theory basically states that the loss of co-evolving microbes, especially helminths and parasites, worms and parasites, has put a strain on the ability of the immune system to develop natural tolerance to non-pathogenic protein epitopes from food, plants, dust, and animals. The prototypical study that looked at this reality was published in 2016 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it looked at house dust microbial cell wall endotoxin levels in the genocentric communities of the Amish and the Hutterite enclaves in the United States of America. The measured dust endotoxin levels used as a marker of microbial co-evolution from birth. The Amish community lived very intimately with their animals as the children spend much time from birth on exposed on farms that expose them to animals in their nearby vicinity. Contrast this with the Hutterite community where the children live peripherally on mechanized centralized farm. They were rarely exposed to farm animals. This differential exposure almost made it like a twin study. To the animals give gave the Amish children a roughly seven times higher microbial exposure than their Hutterite brethren throughout their lives. Statistically, the study showed that the Amish offspring had a four times, four X fold, lower risk of developing asthma allergic sensation. They posited that the lack of microbial exposure was driving the disease in the Hutterite children. The New England Journal article can be found in the newsletter by the link, and it's written by Dr. Stein, S-T-E-I-N et al. in 2016. The researchers then furthered their evidence of causation and not just association by exposing asthma-prone mice, genetically predisposed to developing asthma, to the respective endotoxin-laden house dust from both communities. What they found was remarkable. The dust exposure dictated whether a mouse developed the f- disease phenotype that we call asthma in humans. The, asthma dust expo- the Amish dust-exposed mice did not develop asthmatic disease paralleling the human data of disease risk. This is a relatively strong data set for causation as the endotoxin exposure leads to a natural immune priming intolerance. The two-year COVID-19 isolation masking and hypersanitizing experiment is an unnatural experiment that we can follow and need to follow for the development of atopic diseases in children based on the lack of endotoxin and infectious exposure over that period of time of lockdown. We have seen a massive shift in illness onset from all-cause infection diseases since the fall of 2020, when life returned to pre-pandemic activity in North Carolina. Kids are getting infections at frequent and significant morbid levels due to the two-year immunity debt from these COVID isolation practices. The volume of disease of atopic volume appears higher, but this is purely anecdotal and speculation on my part. I am waiting for hard numbers to answer this question. In the next few months, I hope to have some raw data pulled from our own EMR at our office to see if a trend has occurred based on the diagnosis of wheeze, asthma, or albuterol medicine use. Knowing that a failure of early microbial exposure is compounded by overclean environments, cesarean section birth route deliveries, antimicrobial drug use, and the lack of breastfeeding, the science is now proving that long-term effect is to develop an abnormal intestinal microbiome that allows the interface between the outside world, i.e. food and the immune system, to be compromised. The actual process by which this happens immunologically is beyond the scope of this article. Essentially, there is a crosstalk between the microbe of our lungs and our gut 
and our immune cells. That is disrupted, leading to abnormal recognition of food protein epitopes, leading to antibody responses primarily in the IgE class in food allergy and the IgG, IgG4, and IgA classes for food sensitivity and intolerances. There is also a solid body of growing evidence that beyond the human immune system's response, there is innate immune T-cell response to intestinal pulmonary microbial peptides driving low-grade endotoxemia that is seen as inflammation. This latter point is likely a major player in the inflammatory process of humans and is well known that highly processed food laden with sugar, high fructose corn syrup, and saturated fats drive the intestinal microbiome to a dysbiotic gram-negative rod predominant enterotype. That is to say that these specific foods that are found in the standard American diet are likely to promote a type of bacterial growth in the microbiome of our guts that is predominantly made of this type called a gram-negative rod, which can cause inflammation in high volume. Fructose is a special category that is broken down into the metabolite uric acid, which is a known inflammasome activator and leads to localized pulmonary inflammation. We'll get into that further as the weeks go on. What is now evolving rapidly is a scientific understanding that beyond the early life risks for immune disruption, as stated earlier, there is clear evidence that nutritional components of human diet dramatically affect what microbes make up the intestinal microbiome. The diet and lifestyle-induced microbial community, in turn, can increase the risk of low-level bacterial endotoxemia and, therefore, systemic inflammation that we see of worsening of diseases like asthma. Following this pathological mechanistic path, the ability to use the nutritional component of human lifestyle medicine is now critical to ameliorating diseases of all inflammatory types, including asthma. What are the mechanisms of food-induced inflammation? What foods promote the growth of which microbes in the gut? These are the evolving research projects will elucidate better these understandings over time. How is nutrition in the broader context understood as it relates to disease risk? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner have long been the place-time events where humans congregate in fellowship. Food is revered in many cultures for its intrinsic healing properties and also for disease prevention. Modern America, for many reasons, has fallen away from his belief as corporate and government-sponsored food distribution services has sought to maximize taste and caloric density over macro and micronutrient makeup. We have fallen prey to this reality as our taste buds and psyche are evolutionarily geared to love the easily consumed varieties of macronutrients, carbohydrate, fat, and protein, which are the lifeblood of human energetic model. Providing energy is paramount to our survival. Thus, we would like to eat certain types of food that are highly caloric and energetic. But moving past this calorie taste-based model of eating and toward a healing food consumption model is predicated on understanding which foods are driving disease. Looking at some recent research in inflammatory bowel disease by Dr. Suskind and colleagues, we see a first design and implementation study to prove the effect of diet and inflammation. His group used a specific carbohydrate diet that is devoid of trigger antigens like casein, gluten, and other grain proteins. Removing these antigenic triggers to immune sensitization caused a downregulation of innate and adaptive immune attack on the gut lining, thus reducing the symptoms and clinical markers of inflammatory bowel disease. This immune mechanism response to diet is believed to occur in many inflammatory-based disease states like asthma and allergy, 
that are seemingly disparate from autoimmune diseases like Crohn's. The medical allergy community has to date focused only on true IgE-mediated food reactions as a means to potential asthma disease avoidance as it relates to food. Yet Suskind et al. with the Crohn's disease model has shown us that what is really happening is multimodal immune-mediated responses and not just reduced to one antibody response, that being IgE. This process is also well visualized in the infants and children suffering from non-IgE food-mediated disease like milk protein intolerance to the casein protein that presents with symptoms of eczema colitis, gastroesophageal reflux, and colic behavior. Remember that the IgE-mediated is the thing we think of in the sense of like, let's say somebody eats a peanut and gets really, really sick or dies. That's IgE, rapid onset, very, very systemic response with vomiting, wheezing, uh, throat closure. It's like very, very serious. Blood pressure drop. IgG, IgG4 and IgA tend to be a slow, indolent process, but they still cause significant problems. Skin rashes, bleeding from intestinal lining, gastroesophageal reflux or colic. These are all significant. So what is happening immunologically in asthma and allergy? We need to keep an open mind to the complexity of human immunologic responses to food and avoid reductionist medicine that silos disease etiology to one cell type. If there's anything that I've learned over the last two decades, it is that reductionist beliefs are mostly wrong, especially in medicine. All right, we're going to continue the story in the next audio cast. Section two, machine learning algorithms are becoming super useful for getting a window into possible treatment options for different disease states. In a new paper in Nature Communications, we see that machine learning finding three new targets for drug discovery in the realms of cancer therapy and the prevention of premature aging. The authors state in the article that three plants have favorable properties to be senolytics in cells in the body, which means that they have the ability to break down our senile cells, cells that are dying, that cause metabolic damage when left to persist in the system. They computationally found that ginkgetin from the ginkgo biloba plant, periplosin from periplocosepium, and oleandrin from nerium oleander have potency and effects in humans that could have significant value in human longevity. From the article, they write, quote, senescence in a cellular state characterized by permanent cell cycle arrest, macromolecular damage, and metabolic alterations. The senescent phenotype can be triggered by multiple cellular and environmental stressors, including replicative exhaustion, oncogenic activity, chemotherapy, and radiation, and is known to have beneficial and deleterious effects on tissue microenvironment. For example, senescence aids mammalian embryonic development, promotes wound healing and stemness, and is a potent tumor suppression mechanism that restrains the growth of cells in danger of malignant alterations. Conversely, senescent cells also promote tumorigenesis and various age-related malignancies due to the secretion of a complex set of proteins known as senescence-associated secretory phenotype. Besides their role in cancer and aging, the senescent program has been linked to adverse effects in a broad range of conditions including osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, pulmonary fibrosis, SARS-CoV-2 infection, hepatic steatosis, and neurodegeneration. As a result, there is a growing interest in the discovery of manusenolytics, i.e. therapeutic agents that selectively target senescent cells for elimination, end quote. For me, this is the beginning of a new age of medical advancement and, frankly, therefore, medicine. 
we are going to be using machine learning to chase down hard-to-discover plant-based targets of disease prevention and not just symptom management. And in the clinic, we're going to hopefully use these type of computing technologies over the future to start to develop better ways of treating patients, better ways of delivering information, better ways of doing everything. Having the AI-style computer algorithm gives an advanced look at the entire plant landscape for a specific need and will speed up drug discovery and thus improve human health more expediently. That's what I'm hopeful of. Okay, the recipe of this week. I'm digging back into my old friend Mark Allison's recipe trove to share a goodie. He does such an amazing job of breaking down the quality of nutrients and how they help us. I am grateful to him for allowing me to keep sharing these recipes with you. I encourage you to go to the website, salisburypediatrics.com, or go to the newsletter and look up um, this latest recipe, Mahi Mahi with Summer Fruits by Mark Allison, or go straight to his website, Chef Mark Allison, and you can get all kinds of goodies. But ma this Mahi Mahi with Summer Fruits is excellent. Lots and lots of antioxidants, lots of omega-3 fats, lots of quality uh, omega fats with avocados, some saturated fat. I mean, it's just a good, good mixture of things here. So highly recommend it. Give it a whirl. See what the taste buds say about it. All right, Song of the Week, Hungry Like a Wolf by Duran Duran, an oldie but a goodie. The question of the week was, do you think that autism is caused by vaccines? And one-third of the respondents said they do. Do you think that we should mandate vaccines for school entry? And 55% say they think we should. So for me, fully a third of respondents believe the vaccines are behind autism. This is another strong indicator for me of the need for a blinded vaccine study to answer this question once and for all. Thanks to all for sharing their beliefs. While I am in the opposite camp from the vaccines cause autism belief, I am 100% in favor of dialogue and more studies to help assuage fears. If you haven't listened to the podcast called The Growing Brain, do so to get a little more perspective on some of the current roots to autism that are growing in science literature. It is probably from about the June time frame, so probably about eight weeks ago when I published that Growing Brain piece. And then this week, actually, the podcast with Dr. Noel, the immun he's an immunologist, neonatologist, we discussed interesting a subpopulation that have a risk of developing pulmonary hypertension if they get the hepatitis B vaccine as a premature child. He and I are both pro-vaccine, but this is a very interesting study that says there may be some subtypes that we have to be very careful of. Again, I think we need more data. That's it this week, folks. As always, hug those kids. Appreciate you. The information provided in this audio cast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.